0: Let's stand again for the reading of God's word, not the word of man, but the word of the living God, who has spoken through men of old, and he has preserved his word even unto this day, that we might hear it and profit from it. John 13, I'll be reading verse 31 through 35, our focus will be on 33 through 35. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You shall seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Thus far God's word. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we have assembled before you. We have come to magnify your name, to ascribe unto you glory, dominion, power, and majesty. And Father, you have revealed yourself... In creation, in the works of providence, we see your hand at work all around us in our lives, in the affairs of men. But Father, you have especially revealed yourself and your Son, having spoken him through him and to us, that we might hear and see the good news even Christ. O well, Lord, as we are assembled here, we ask that you would bless that which you have ordained that we should do in our worship to have the preaching and the hearing of the word of God. We ask that the Spirit who inspired these men of old, that he would be at work even now in our midst, for you have promised that you have given us the Spirit, and you will never leave us nor forsake us. Well, Lord God, be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'm not going to have a long introduction this morning Just bring us back into the context of where we were at last week, We picking up where we left off. We're in the midst of Jesus teaching us of why the cross. As we've just heard again that God is glorified in the cross. We've already seen that the cross of Jesus glorified the Father, and in that the Father glorified His Son. Jesus then teaches us that it's necessary for Him to leave His disciples and to go to the Father so that the glory of God remains on full display on earth, Those whom he saves at the cross must fully rely on him and love one another. I'm going to use three main headings I'm borrowing from Rick Phillips' outline here. Uh, A new situation, a new love, a new priority. A new situation, a new love, a new priority. So we begin with a new situation. Jesus knows that he only has a few more hours ...with his disciples, and then his daily fellowship with them will end. He knows that, but they do not know that. And indeed, it will never resume in the manner that they are so familiar with. And so Jesus addresses them with great affection, little children. Little children. It's it's a term that we would use with our own children. We deal with little children, I think, differently than older children. There's a tenderness in dealing with the little children... And that's tenderness is here. This is the only place in the Gospels where this word is used. And it's only used once by Jesus. The apostle John will use it multiple times in his first epistle, first John as we know it, the letters to the churches. John will be writing as an elderly man. He will be the last of the apostles left. And so when he looks at the church, they are, as to him, little children. But here Jesus in many cases, not even older than some of the men that are walking with him. But in another sense, he is the one who is from of old. He is the ancient of days. But the term little children speaks especially of the tenderness and the love and the care and the compassion that he has for these men with whom he's walked. There are hard things, unexpected things that are about to fall on them even as he is taken away to be crucified. So Jesus uses this term, this term of endearment, to express the strength of his love for the eleven that remain in the upper room. Men who are spiritually immature, thus children. And yet, even in their immaturity, and we've seen that in the Gospels, of how weak they are. And yet, even so, they are dear to him. Jesus then goes on, little children, I shall be with you. A little while longer, uh, with a statement, Jesus introduces then a new situation. That which has been familiar to them is about to change. He's been with them; they've walked with him. In this new uh, situation that's come upon them, requires a new commandment and a new priority in order that all the world would know that Jesus, who are Jesus' true followers. And as we will see, that the glory of God would continue to be displayed on the earth. Jesus' departure will necessarily bring deep grief to his disciples. They will be alarmed, they will be frightened, they will be confused as things continue to unfold. And so Jesus gives them, we could say, an early warning that things are about to be different. He's going to depart from them. Jesus' words are prophetic. It's not the first time they've heard him. Notice that he says, you will, a little while longer, um, little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You shall seek me. And as I said to the Jews, remember a few chapters ago, we heard Jesus say this to them, where I am going, you cannot come. And Jesus says, so now I say to you. (laughs) They would have understood that Jesus often made a distinction between the Jews and the crowds and and that they were in a unique position. And now Jesus tells them uh, this, which must have been quite alarming to them, that he would say the same to them, I'm going away even from you. Now, Jesus' words are prophetic. Uh, They tell them the reality of what is coming. And as I've pointed out to you before, in prophecies, sometimes there's multiple fulfillments. There will be the immediate and the obvious fulfillment, but you'll see uh, additional fulfillments. In other times you'll see fulfillments leading up to the great fulfillment. I've uh, spoken of it as being like approaching a mountain range. We did this some years ago. It took the girls to the west. We were driving out of Kansas uh, westward toward uh, Colorado and, of course, Pikes Peak, that mighty mountain's there. And, and uh, I told them that you'll see a mountain peak. I think I told them, you know, whoever sees the peak first, I'll give them $5. And, of course, then you see just this little tiny blip on the horizon. Because you're just seeing the top. But then as we continued on, just before sunset, we begin to see more. Well, the next day we wake up and it's not just that peak. There's mountains behind mountains. And even as you see those mountains, there are mountains you cannot see. Because they are obscured by the mountains that are in front of them. Prophecies are like that. As a prophecy comes, there will be the fulfillment. But there will be other fulfillments according to God's good order. And so when Jesus says to them that he is going away and they will not be able to go with him, there's two fulfillments. There's the immediate departure as he is led away. He is crucified on the cross and he dies. He, he is gone from them. He's completing the work that the Father gave him to do, that, that work that glorifies the Father and the Son. But then after some 40 days, Jesus will ascend to the right hand of the Father and he will be taken away from them Physically until he comes again. And that's the experience the church has had since that day. Jesus' words would have been difficult for them to understand and uh, that they could not go with him. We'll see next week with Peter the confusion that was within him. But what Jesus was about to do was necessary to secure salvation of his people, to secure those men, their salvation, but also to secure the salvation even of us in this day. When that work of redemption was complete, it was necessary that he should ascend to the right hand of the Father and receive the reward as the God-man, particularly as the man, he is God the Son, come from ruling and reigning with his Father, but now he is incarnate, he's in our human flesh, he's the God-man, and he will ascend to the right hand of the Father, and there receive the reward that the Father has promised to him for the work that he has done. We sing these words often from Psalm 2, but particularly verse 8, the Father speaking to the Son says, ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance in the ends of the earth for your possession. And then the psalm goes on to talk about him sit there on high where the fathers set him to rule over the nations with a rod of iron. This is christ by rights because of his obedience to the father and securing salvation for his people god has entrusted the nations to his dominion and he will reign from on high so it was necessary for him to go but you remember also that in uh, the discourse and the conversation jesus had with his disciples he told him he's going away and he says it's necessary i must go away so that i can send to you the comforter so all these things are necessary but these are Not understood by these men, and thus Jesus addresses them so tenderly, my little children. Jesus has more to say about this departure. We'll pick up with that next week in the next verse. For the past three years, these 11 men have walked with Jesus. He's their master. He's their rabbi. They have gone where he has gone, Peter. Andrew, James, John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, and Simon the Canaanite, they've all relied on Jesus. They've gone where he's gone. They've been with him. They've seen the miracles. And Jesus is saying, I'm going away. It's a pretty alarming thing. But as Jesus has loved them, The only example they've actually had of what true love is. They've walked with him. They've talked with him. They've learned from him. They've been corrected by him. They've seen mighty miracles as he has ministered for three years. Consider this. They have come to know intimately in those three years love incarnate. Yes, he's God in the flesh and God is love. And they have seen love incarnate. He has demonstrated his love towards them. He's about to go and demonstrate the love of God for sinners in the greatest way ever. No greater way can be shown than at the cross. That very night, and each and every one of them entered the other room, upper room. And as they came in the door they walked past basin, water, towel for the washing of feet. They've all walked past it. Not one of them Thought to take it upon themselves to wash the other's feet, and yet Jesus has stooped and washed their feet. So recently, they've been bickering about which of them is the greatest. Not a loving thing to do. The Kent, we relate, do we not understand that? And so, Jesus, their teacher and Lord, on that occasion laid aside the towel, girded himself, and washed their feet. Displaying love. But a new situation will soon arrive. Jesus, the good shepherd, is about to go to the cross and lay down his life for his sheep. Then and there, Jesus will display the greatest love of all. Jesus has spoken of this back in chapter 10. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. But Jesus is going to speak of it again in John 15 in this same discourse that has now become that we are making our way through over these next several months. John 15 Jesus says greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. He's going to give the greatest display of love and indeed be love in that act. So Jesus' departure is ushering in a new situation that required that the disciples direct the love that they have for Jesus to one another. That they... As they have learned to love the Lord and will continue to learn to love the Lord, that they are to direct that love to one another. In verse 31 and 32, Jesus spoke of the glory of the Father and the glory of the Son. And last week we learned that the glory of God is in full display at the cross. It's an irony, is it not? That at the cross where Jesus dies, that we see the love of God on full display when the Son of God so loves the Father and all that the Father has given unto him that he lays down his life to save them from their sin. And The Father's glory is displayed in that he has sent his Son into the world for this very purpose. That glory of God. This glory is a display of the love of God, the God who is love, that he so loves the world that he gave, even his only begotten son. My friends, there's no greater display of love than at the cross. We should never lose sight of that. No greater display has ever been given than when the son of God gave his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus is about to go to the cross and glorify the father. And when that work is done, Jesus will depart this world and return to heaven, even as Jesus Uh, some months ago was teaching the Jews that he had come down from heaven, he's going to return to heaven, and they were enraged at him. This seemed to them to be but blasphemy because they refused to acknowledge that he was the Son of God come in the flesh, fulfilling the prophecies concerning him. So this new situation will be that Christ will be in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. When we consider that the love of God and the glory of God had been on full display while Jesus was on earth, God incarnate, God with us, then we must ask the question, how will the love and the glory of God be displayed on earth after Jesus departs? How will that happen? Well, that's what Jesus then commands. That brings us to our second point, this new love. Having said that to them, Jesus then says a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. While the eleven have known love incarnate, God in the flesh, they have scarcely been loving to one another, even as the recent bickering and the refusal to wash one another's feet. These are but lesser manifestations of the complete lack of love for one another. We do not naturally have a love for one another. Our natural inclination is self-love, self-preservation, looking out for self, our agenda, our needs, our um, desires, our goals, our ambitions. That's naturally who we are as sinners. But my little children, how often... If we act like these men in our own homes? Even you children find yourselves bickering and fighting with one another, wanting what another has, refusing to share. That's what's been given to you. Have you ever seen, some of you, I hope, can say, oh, yeah, I've done this. You've seen the dishes piled by the sink, and you say, you know what? I'm, I'm going to show love for my family. I'm going to wash those dishes. It's so easy to walk by them, isn't it? We're like the disciples thinking about ourselves or leaving your dirty clothes lying around on the floor with little thought of how they'll end up from there back in your drawer clean. In some cases, um, your mother washes your clothes, but it's your responsibility to fold them and put them away, and yet how often do they just lie in the heap on the end of your bed clean until you take them up and wear them. So often we want to be served first. We want the biggest piece of dessert or the last donut. Do we leave it for someone else? Do we share with others? You see, we naturally show self-love. That's our natural inclination, a complete disregard for others. So to the 11 as well as to us, Jesus gives this new commandment to love one another And he defines it as he has loved us. And that love is a sacrificial love. That love is a decisional love. That is a love that purposely, intentionally gives costly love. We see all of that wrapped up in the cross. I'm not going to uh, give a lengthy description of what love is in this sermon. But we're all familiar with 1 Corinthians 13 where paul writes what live love is what love looks like keeping no record of wrongs hardly noticing when others doing it wrong not sinking our own way not boasting we're familiar with that passage but let's ask the question how do we keep this commandment this commandment that jesus has said that you love one another as i have loved you how do we do that if we're not naturally inclined that way, if, if the natural bent of our being is to serve ourselves, how do we love one another as Christ loved the church? Well, it begins by first acknowledging we're not capable. I'm not capable. We're not able, as sinners, to love others. It is contrary to the nature of the sinner. But as creatures, as sinners born in, born of the Spirit, born from God, our heart has been changed but our flesh. Remember Paul in Romans 7, this flesh that we live in, that we're at war with, that wants to be served, wants to be gratified, wants to have its way. And so the good that we would do, loving one another, we find ourselves not doing. And the very thing that we desire to do, to love one another, we fail to do. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God for the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, that's the answer. How are we to keep this commandment to love one another? How do we take up what Christ has given to us? Well, the answer is, um, it takes us back to the glory of God in the Son. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus was going to the cross so that by his, his suffering, the penalty for our sin, and securing salvation for those whom the Father had given to us, we then, in him, notice that, in Christ, Would be able to love one another. It is because of Christ's sacrifice, Christ breaking the power of sin, delivering us from the penalty of sin, and giving us new hearts, a new nature, and renewed wills, then we are able to do what Christ has commanded. The scriptures. Particularly you think of Paul's letters, he has the wonderful proclamations of the gospel. Who Christ is. What Christ has done. And he spends some time on that. I think Ephesians is one of the best examples of that. It splits real nicely. Three chapters of being in Christ, in him, and talking about what Christ has done. And as we're in him, that is for us. And then halfway through he says, therefore. And then he begins to give us the commandments and exhortations. And and really he's just taking the, the, the law and... Um, given us an exposition of that in the second half of ephesians jesus came to pay the debt we owe jesus lived the sinless life that we failed to live but jesus broke the power of sin and he raised up from the dead was raised up for our justification Therefore, we are raised up in newness of life. You, we've talked about this before that in Revelation, John talks about those who are partakers of the first resurrection have no part in the second death. Well, what is that first resurrection? It's when Christ sends his spirit within our hearts, which are dead, and he raises us to newness of life. He does the work of regeneration, and we have that rebirth. We're born of the spirit, born from above. Now we are partakers of the first resurrection. We're new creatures in Christ. Behold, the old ways are gone, and the new has come. But the flesh is still here, and we need Christ So that by Christ's spirit we can put to death the deeds of the flesh. That we can die to self. That we take up daily the cross. We are to take up the cross and die daily. That is our flesh to sin. That we would live to the glory of God. Jesus has given us this new life so that we would glorify him. So when Jesus comes to command us to love just as he's loved. He's calling us to costly sacrificial And we'll say decisional love. It doesn't just kind of happen because we feel like it. That's the emotion. We choose to love. We are mindful. We see situations. We um, see ways to serve others. And we say, I will do this to the glory of God. I will take an act and, and walk by faith to do the will of my Father to minister to and care for others. And when we live this way, we're displaying The glory of God on earth. See, Christ is ascending to the right hand of the Father. While he's been on the earth, he's been glorifying the Father. The Father's glorified in him. But this new situation, he's going back to the Father, requires a new commandment that we live for the glory of God, that we walk in obedience to Christ and display the glory of God at work in us. Because, my friends, we can just naturally live like the world. This is easy to just go on sinning. But when we don't, when we live for the glory of God and we love one another with a sacrificial love, that's a display of the work of Christ on the cross. That's a manifestation of the power of God unto salvation in sinners. And my friends, in that, Christ is glorified and the Father is glorified. The work that Jesus came in to do, it's manifest on the earth today. We Glorify God and point others to glorify God. This is what Christ is talking about. Now, when Jesus says this is a new commandment, what's new about this commandment? Uh, trust me. You know, every I think every commentator I picked up says something to the effect of a lot of ink's been spilt on the debate. Because, you know, you think about it, it's not that at this point we've suddenly ask, okay, Jesus has said we need to love one another. Huh, we never heard that before. No, because even the second great commandment is recorded in Leviticus, that we're to love our neighbors ourselves. When Jesus gave the summary of the law, maybe it was the first time those who were inquiring had heard it, but the sentiment of what Jesus said, it's in the Old Testament. It's even in the Ten Commandments. The law called to love the Lord our God and to love our neighbor as ourselves, And so we could say, well, it's, that's not new. So what's new about it? J.C. Ryle writes in a helpful way. I, I found it interesting, you know, that uh, there was no one commentator that I think just nailed it. Um, I actually did a paper in seminary on this question, what's new about the new commandment? And, you know, a whole classroom of guys did, and we talked about what we discovered. But I found J.C. Ryle helpful. He says, it's called a new commandment, not because it has never been given before, but because it was to be more honored, to occupy a higher position, to be backed up by a higher example than it had ever had before. Thus, as I have loved you, Jesus said. He's the example, sacrificial love. He's displayed just how costly such love could be. That's never been done before. So that's what J.C. Ryle's getting at. Basically, we could sum it up and say, Jesus is saying, love like I loved you. Love like I loved you. Jesus died. Now, that's not saying that we need to go out and die and die and die. We can only die once, right? But when Paul writes, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, uh, certainly, uh, you know, the old, uh, uh, I guess you could say, uh, traditional Western value, you know, if there's great harm. the ships going down. Women and children first. You know, men are laying down their life for them. And, you know, sometimes men are walking around saying, yeah, I'll take a bullet for my wife that's commendable but the real point is are you willing to die to yourself for your wife day by day are you willing to sacrifice what you desire for her good day by day and of course we could translate that into love for others dying to self a costly love there's something to this because of what jesus is about to do loving others and who is he loving unworthy, rebellious, disobedient sinners. God so loved the world, and that's what was in the world, that he sent his only begotten son. Jesus went to save sinners. John Calvin would have us reflect on how it goes um, whenever we receive this commandment. At first, we are very careful when we receive a new commandment maybe you've never heard a commandment before and then the first time you hear it's like okay i'm going to focus on that but then as time goes on we kind of forget and then eventually we forget the commandment right i was thinking about how every week what do we hear we hear the law of god we hear the ten commandments have you ever come in and said you know what got them all down no need to hear those this week but I think probably really the reflection, your reflection is like mine. is like, I need to hear that again. We hear that, we walk out of here, and so quickly we, for, we forget it. You know, Within hours, we're, we're breaking one of the Ten Commandments, if not within moments. And thus we need to hear it over and over again. And so what John, John Calvin is saying is that in order for Jesus to press this commandment to love one another more deeply to his disciples, he commands it on the grounds of newness. It's as if Jesus is saying, I wish you all to continually remember this commandment as if it had been a law most recently made. Like the first time you heard it, again and again, to remember it like a law most recently made. Jesus wants us to never let this commandment slip away, to never let it be forgotten. As sinners say, by God's grace and the Lord Jesus Christ, we are made new creatures to stop our self-love, our selfish living, and to start loving others. And when we do so, when we love others, as Christ has loved others, we show the power of God in salvation, and that brings glory to God. So by loving, we bear the fruit of the Spirit. What's the first one? Love. The very first fruit of the Spirit is love. And when we bear the fruit of the spirit we show that we have been to the school of christ and that we have learned from him that that which he has done for us is not in vain god is at work and his power is on display in our lives soon we will come to jesus exhortation to abide in him the 15th chapter as the branch abides in the vine and bears much fruit the fruit of the spirit then begins to flow from Christ in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, uh, gentleness, and self-control. I had a conversation uh, this week uh, with uh, some brothers and sisters about uh, the sign gifts, uh, the revelatory gifts, the gifts of the Spirit, and how they play a role in the life of the church, and how do we know which ones have ceased and so forth? And talking about you know, uh, my experience back in high school being in a charismatic church and what I observe, you know, we, and I want us to think about this for ourselves, it's easy for us to say, oh, yeah, those charismatics, they got so much wrong. Aren't we great that we don't have that air? Well, some of us have come out of that. Some of us have been in those experiences. But the real danger is that we look for these fruits, uh, these spiritual gifts will say speaking in tongues to assure ourselves everything's well with the Lord. I'm speaking in tongues, I must be converted. Well, even a, a dull, dumb person can babble on, which is pretty much what's happening with what is so-called speaking in tongues today. Speaking in tongues in the scriptures, they were speaking known language, intelligible language to others who could understand them. But the real danger is that we, we say, well, you know, I'm doing that, so everything's right. And my experience in high school and the church we're in that we didn't see a whole lot of holiness in living. You see, what Jesus is calling us to holiness of living that begins with love for one another, our neighbor, our nearest neighbor, those who are around us. It begins in the household of God. And when we exhibit the love of God, God is glorified. If we babble on in an unintelligible uh, tongue, uh, people mock or are confused. But when people see sacrificial love, they recognize what that is. And it stands out. It's different. It's great. It's the the first of the fruits, the greatest of the fruits of love. Paul says uh, at the end of 1 Corinthians 13, that the end, faith, hope, and love, these remain, but the greatest is love. Why? Because hope Once that which we hope for, Christ, comes, we see him, we don't need to hope anymore. And what is faith? It's the evidence of things unseen and a a hope for things not yet shown. We're looking for, and when Christ comes to gather us home, my friends, we will not walk by faith anymore. We will walk by sight because the reality of the promises will be ours. So faith and hope will fade away, but love endures forever, for God is love. And as people, the love of God should be manifest in our lives so that God is glorified, but also so that we are known to be his own. This leads us to the third point, this new priority. Jesus is leaving. He will no longer walk with his disciples in the flesh. This will be the new situation for them. Jesus will no longer uh, be walking with them, leading them. And so this new situation requires an old commandment, to love one another, but it's given a new urgency in that with a new power that will come upon them at the day of Pentecost with the giving of the Holy Spirit in great measure. And this then leads to a new priority. Verse 35, Jesus says, by this, that is love one for another, by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. So you see Jesus not only setting it out for our priority uh, to be remembered and practiced Thus calling a new commandment. But he declares it twice. That you have love one for another. But in the midst of it, he says, By this all will know that you are my disciples. How does the world know that we're followers of Christ? Because we tell them? Most often they'll mock us, right? Walk away with disdain. Just by proclaiming, I'm a Christian. The world knows that we belong to Jesus when we love one another. Even the world can recognize the uniqueness of that. When Jesus walked throughout the land loving others and doing them great good, by what? Teaching, preaching, healing, casting out demons. It was clear who he was. and It was clear who his disciples were because they went with him everywhere he went. Wherever Jesus went, these 11 men were there with him. If you want to know who Jesus' disciples were, well, these guys, they're always showing up. They're always with them. It was clear, but Jesus is going back to the right hand of the Father. He, he's leaving, and his presence on earth will now be in the church. We are Christ on the earth as a church because we're Christ's body. This is what Paul teaches. Interestingly enough, he teaches that to the Corinthian church, which is really struggling with carrying out love one for another you look at the, all the, the problems that are in that congregation they're they're bickering they're fighting uh, the animus and evil the intent sometimes they have to one another and paul sets out before them that passage so well known to us. He says, you're the body of christ christ is the head and we're the body and the hand can't say to the foot i have no need of thee and, and where would the eye be without the hand we need one another he uses that vivid illustration and do we not care for our own body We love our body. We care for our body. Paul uses this when he's talking about husbands loving their wives. He says, she's one with your flesh. And do you not love your body? Love your wife. She's one with you. How will the world know that we belong to Jesus? Because we love one another, our fellow members, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ on the earth. And when we do this, we're manifesting the glory of God at work in his church. This is the new priority. The love for one another as Christ has loved us. Sacrificial love. Notice Jesus. Uh, what Jesus doesn't give as a priority. Things that we often make the priorities. A big budget. A big congregation. Influential political leaders. How fun worship can be. Jesus doesn't list any of these. He says you'll be known by how you love one another praise God by God's grace we can do that our priority is to love one another even as Christ has loved us with humility with compassion with kindness the church displays the power of God to save when our lives are transformed and we love as Jesus loved we're we're light the light of Christ shining in a dark world the church has been entrusted with the gospel that we should preach it and that we should live it. It's not just enough to go around with our words. Our words need to line up, or our actions, or our actions should be a reflection of our words. The church has been called to worship God according to the precepts, sit down in the word of God. And the church has been called to minister to the naked, hungry, sick, and friendless in the name of Christ. And all of these things are important. But if they're not done with love, what does Paul write in 1 Corinthians? 13, then we become as sounding brass and as a clanging cymbal. We could be doing a lot of the right things. You think about uh, the letters to the seven churches. One of them is commended for their love for one another. In other cases, there were problems there. Clanging cymbals. Think about, tell me you adults, you're old enough, think about some of the ways that Christians have wanted the world to know that They're Christians. You know, sometimes they wear a cross around their their neck on a necklace or they get a cross tattooed somewhere on their body or they have some T-shirt with some message or they slap a fish symbol on their bumper. And some days, some of your days back, you you, you told the world you're a Christian by the way you cut your hair even, right, with the, the monks. But Jesus doesn't commend any of these. He says... I want the world to know who my bride is, by my bride loving one another as I have loved. My friends, that never falls out of favor. It doesn't matter what generation, era, or culture, or nation that the church is in, the love that we would display for one another, it's timeless. It's enduring. It's a message that's clearly understood. Love is what we are to wear so that the world would know that we are the blood-bought followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're told in Acts that as the church was living this way, loving this way, the world said, see how they love one another. They say, you know, look how big their gatherings are, look how fine their clothes are. Look how their, their feasts they enjoy together. No, the church marvels. See how they love one another because the world does not have that kind of love. It can't be faked. It can't be imitated. It's from God. It's the love of God at work in us by the Spirit that we would love one another. And the world will take notice and say, see how they love one another. And in this, the Father's glorified and the Son is glorified when we love one another. In verse 31, as we heard so clearly last week, I believe, that the crucifixion is how the Son is glorified, and it's how he glorifies the Father, as he does that work. So we should ask, how are the Father and the Son glorified in us? The answer is when we die to self and live for Christ. Die to self and live for Christ. Our greatest calling is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Isn't that what we were taught as we babes? This is our chief end. We glorify God best, and we enjoy God best when we are loving one another. Answer a question. Let's answer a question that might be pressing on you right now. I've alluded to it some way where you might say, but how, Pastor? How can I love those who are so unlovely? How can I love the difficult people in my life, right? Be honest, right? We have them. How do I love the unlovely? Well, the answer is Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on the cross. He defeated sin. He broke the power of sin, the penalty for sin. He defeated Satan. And this is why we ascribe glory unto God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. For Christ has secured new life in him so that we can live for his glory. Our union to Christ by faith results in our death to sin. That's what Paul writes when he says, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him through baptism unto death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. We've died in Christ to live for Christ. What he's done enables us. Paul again in Romans 6 for if we have been united together in the likeness of his death certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection knowing this that the old man was crucified in him that the body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin. How do we live? How do we love others who are lovely? It's in Christ. Paul, a little later in Romans 6 says, Likewise, you also reconcile yourself to be dead unto sin, but alive to God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey avoid, avoid its lust. And Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God Paul all this language Paul is communicating how do we love the unlovely how do we do any of the things that Christ has commanded to us which are all really summed up in love for God and love for neighbor how do we do that well it's because of what Christ has done and we're united to him we're dead to sin we're alive in a Christ we're new creatures the old man is gone and the new has come and the spirit dwells within us we love the unlovely, because we have new life in Christ. We, as John said Jesus would do, we have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in us. You've heard me marvel. that. I hope you all were marveled. Think about the Holy Spirit who hovered over the face of the deep at creation. The Holy Spirit who is made visible to uh, Ezekiel in his vision of dry bones, who when he called for the, to the four winds, the Spirit came and breathed life into these that were once dead. The Holy Spirit who raised Christ from the dead and, and Lazarus and, and the Americas, that Holy Spirit, my friends, dwells in us. That is awesome. That is astounding. We have the Holy Spirit. And therefore, when we remember this, that when Christ commands us to do something, love the unlovely to love as he loves he has enabled us so we can say with paul i'm crucified with christ nevertheless i live yet not i but christ lives in me and the life that i now live i live by the faith of the son of god who loved me who loves me and gave himself for me amen father we do marvel that you would stoop to save us as sinners, that you would choose to dwell with those who are rebellious and disobedient. Father, we do rejoice, Lord, that having begun this good work in us, having redeemed us by the blood of your Son, that you abide with us forever, that you have given us the Holy Spirit to dwell within us, to enable us to do all that which you have commanded. You don't command and then send us on our way to fail, for we surely would, but you have provided in Christ, by the Spirit that you've sent to us to love others, that we would love as you have loved. Lord, we pray that you would continue working in us this that you've begun, so that the world would know that we are your disciples, that you would be glorified, that your Father would be glorified, all for the praise, honor of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.